explains in such an eloquent and beautiful way what gets in the way of most people showing up in whatever they want to do in their life in a creative form, whether that's creating art, becoming a singer, becoming a public speaker, writing a book, starting a business, doesn't matter. And the gist of it is, in our minds, we know where we want to be, right? In our minds, we've got examples of where the standard at which we want to operate on, but we're just not there yet, right? There's this big gap between where we know we want to be, where we would like to be, and where the reality is. And that gap is what keeps most people stuck. Because you got to suck and 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 then you suck a little less and then you suck a little less and then you're kind of not sucking so much. You're not sucking so much. You're kind of like coasting. You're average. You're, you're all right. You're getting there. Oh, you're getting better. Now you're getting better. Ooh, you're getting good. You're getting real good. Wow. Now you takes years. Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hey, Mark, welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. It's, it's great to be back. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the reason why I invited you back is because you've recently published a new book, Glow in the Dark, mm. which I've read. I listened to it. I haven't read it. I've listened to the, to the audio version because I just told you offline, I have a newborn in the family. I can't read now, but I can listen to many things while I'm doing many other things. Yeah. And I enjoyed it very much. And I thought I need to have another conversation with Mark. It would be very relevant and useful for our listeners. Let mm -hmm. me start with a curiosity, though. In the book, you mm -hmm. mentioned that in the past, I don't, I don't remember how many years ago, you tried stand-up comedy, right? Yeah. I, I'm asking, I'm asking yeah. because, or I'm mentioning this because I love stand-up comedy. I've never done it myself, mm. but I love it. I love watching it. Mm. Uh, I think as a presentation coach, Mark, I think stand-up comedians are the best public speakers. I'm my favorite one, one of I'm my favorite uh, stand-up comedians is Ricky Gervais. I don't know what you think mm. about him. Some people mm. love him. Some people hate him. Ah, he's, but, very, he's, been, mm. he's very, he's very good. I mean, it's, and I, I agree with you as someone who's done a lot of public speaking, as someone who's, you know, helped other people show up and, and be themselves on stage and that kind of stuff. Um, I think stand-up comedians for me are like like the crossfitters of athletes or the MMA athletes. You know, it's it's kind of the most vulnerable and scary of public speaking, which is crazy because when <laughs> When I did this stand-up comedy, it was like, it's a long story, but the short version is I used to hang around stand-up comedians in South Africa and, and some of my friends were stand-up comedians and I used to go and see them perform at these kind of bars and stand-up comedy clubs. And, and I was just in awe of how they could own a room and just completely control a room, you know what I mean? Like it was just amazing. Like I was just, just really inspired, but terrified. I was like, how? How could you get on that stage and people ex pay and expect you to be funny? It's not like if you can make a few jokes and you're giving a talk and you get a few giggles. No, it's like people are there, like, entertain me, make me laugh. And I will let you know if you're not funny because I'll be silenced or worse, I'll boo you off stage. So I had a lot of fears around. I had a lot of like, like, really, it took 10 years. That's what I talk about in the book. It took me 10 years from the... You know, I used to hang out with Trevor Noah and, and, and you know, kind of South African stand-up comedy royalty. And, 
and I used to bug him all the time. Be like, how do you do it, man? Like, how do you get up there? And he was just like, he was just like, just shut up already. Just get up there, bomb, and you'll see it's not the end of the world. Like he kept on saying, I was like, oh, it's easy for you because you're you're just hilarious. And um, so ten years, I put that on the on the on the backbone. It was always a bit of a a pipe dream. And then one birthday, my partner surprised me by giving me a little box of cards with written words on it. All my friends were there, and I was reading each card like. On June the 17th, something like that. Save the date. I was like, what? You will perform, and I'm going through the cards, a stand-up comedy live at the Backyard Comedy Club, um, like an East London kind of institution. And, uh, and my time stopped. Everything just froze. And I just remember everybody laughing, pointing their fingers at me, clapping their hands in, in, you know, in, in joy. And I was just like, wait, what? This is happening? And it was for charity. It was to raise funds for knife crime against knife crime and so and there was like a six-week course evening course of like an hour a couple of hours every thursday i forgot and it was terrifying i'd go to this course and and you know, this what the, the whole point of me saying this is what i thought was nuts was that people were at the start was like hey why are you here you know what are you hoping to get up today 90 percent plus of the people there were just saying oh I, I really don't like public speaking so i thought i'd do this to to kind of get over my fear of public speaking and i i said that is like saying to someone that I've got vertigo, I'm afraid of heights, I'm going to go and do parachutes, or I'm going to go and, and walk on a cable without any harness just to get over my fear of heights. It is bananas. I just remember just going like, you guys are all nuts. You're all crazy. Like, I'm a professional public speaker. Like, I do this as my, like, full-time business, and I'm terrified of this. Like, what is wrong with all of you? So, yeah, did it. It was horrendous. Like, the six weeks horrendous. I never felt so unfunny in my life. You know what I mean? Like, you, you think you're funny with your friends, and you make your friends giggle or whatever. And then you show up and like, they give you exercise and you bomb and you bomb and you bomb and you're not funny. And every, you have to come up with your own jokes and they suck. And, and, um, and I'll say this, there's, there's a point in the program where they said, try and go and see as much stand-up comedy as you can live. So you can get a feel and a vibe for what a five minute set is. Five minute set is kind of what you start off with as a stand-up comedian. When you go around the rounds of London, you have like a tight five or a then you 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 graduate to a tight ten or something, but like type five is a five minute set, and so I go to the stand up comedy club in North London, which is notorious for being appalling, but I didn't know that back then, and uh, I show up and it was just like this really weird room, weird vibe. It was just like a desk lamp was hanging on a piece of rope to be like the spotlight, like the 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 banner of this guy doing the stand up club was just falling apart in the back. It was just all of it was awful. He was so not funny like he was just blatantly racist and just weird it was just everything was just wrong about this gig and i'm sitting there and all this is you can find all this on video somewhere on youtube right because I, I have like these vlogs that i talked about I, I, I did a vlog series about this but um <laughs> about halfway through right the guy gets on stage and we're all like ready to boo him because he sucks so much and he goes i'm really sorry but the two acts that were supposed to come after the interval have just cancelled so I'm going to try and see what I can do. And don't ask me why I don't like, this is kind of like my brain is so weird. I'm like, oh, I could probably do something here. So I go up to him like, look, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I've got no material. I've never done this before. But if you want me to try and make a few jokes on stage, like I'll do it. And you're like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, great, great. We'll get you on stage. And immediately regretted that decision of ask, of like, suggest like immediately just like, what am I doing? Like, what is wrong with you, man? Like, 
And so he gets on stage, he gets, you know, a few more bombing jokes. Everybody's almost ready to like throw stuff at him. And he goes, right, we've got like a fresh, you know, face comedian coming up. Like, Mark, we're giving it around for Mark LaRusse. And I get on that stage. And I just remember going like, what am I doing here? Like, it was just awful. And I bombed. It was terrible. Like, I just, but here's, here's the reason why I'm sharing this. As I stood there and felt really stupid, I was like, oh, this was the worst thing I, I, I could think could happen and it just happened and I'm all right. I'm alive. I bombed and it's okay. And what I, I the second thing I realized was that I'm just as comfortable on this stage as I am speaking in front of a, a an audience or inside a company or in a boardroom, right? The difference is the material. I just need to work on my material. The rest will, but this will come. So then I went back to the drawing board and I just started working on jokes. I just started writing on sets and practicing. And by the time I got to the, final ceremony i guess of the six weeks what was very interesting is that some who were very very good during rehearsals froze on the night when they got on stage and some of us who just sucked during the six weeks just started shining when we got on that stage so i just remember getting on that stage and like saying like a first couple of jokes people laughed and i was like okay here we go let's do this and then i had an amazing time it was it was so much fun i did the five minutes and i remember this comedian coming up to me and said saying like you should consider doing this because I know veteran stand-up comedians who are not as good as you. And I'm not saying this to say how amazing I am, but because I realized there and then I was like, oh, thank you, but no thanks. Like, I don't want it. Like, I, I'm going to stick to my keynote speaking business and going to leave the stand-up comedy to like professionals because this, I can't, I can't deal with the nerves. I can't deal with the ups and downs. And and I did it one more time after that. Uh, and I did a different set, uh, but Anyway, that was a really long-winded answer to your question of, yes, I, I did do stand-up comedy. No, thank you. Thank you. And I'm also like, Mark, as you said, I'm, I also speak in public all the time, but I am terrified of giving it a try. I've why? Never... So I'm curious, what, what, why are you scared? Like, what is it about the idea? Because I can only speak for myself, but I'm just curious to hear from your brain farting. Like, what is it that you're scared of? I think it goes, I think it goes back to what you said. You said one of the lessons is that it goes back to the material. Now, I think I can do a good job at giving a presentation or speaking in public, communicating an idea in front of someone, mm. because I think Mark, that 80% of our confidence mm. speaking in public boils down to our material, to our content, to our message. Then, of course, you also want to think about how, how to deliver in the best effective way, but the message is the most important thing. Mm. And this is something... One thing is sharing an idea, talking about something. It could be your message, your product, your service. It, I see it as a completely different game mm. when it comes to, like, as you said, you need to make people laugh every few seconds. That's that's how it works. And I don't know. It, 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 it feels like it's not me. I can't, I, I don't know. I can't do it. So, yeah, I mean, I challenge you to do it. You live in London, right? So, you you, you know, you've got access to some amazing stand-up comedy like just do it just to get over yourself to realize that actually you can do it because then what you'll realize what's quite cool actually when you go through this kind of work whether that's a stand-up comedy uh logan murray is another one that does it um you know you start observing your life differently you start going like like i've got a notes on my phone <laughs> of all the potential jokes i can make like just some randomly sometimes i'll say something stupid you know, and then I'll say that could that 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 might be material. And I put it down in my notes, right? I don't know what I'll ever do with it, but um, 
but you know, and you, you know, you became a dad recently, trust me, when it comes down to like material, you're going to have more than you can think of about, you know, you, you and your partner, um, you know, you like raising kids and how you thought, like there's a lot of material you can play with. Um, you, made me, you made me, you made me think about it when, when I read it in, in your book and, and Mark, before we start talking about your yeah. book, the ideas in your book, there's, there's another thing that actually made me laugh. I don't know if you remember the 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 joke, but you shared that as a kid, you you shared a joke about Jesus on 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 live TV, and it didn't it didn't go well. Do you remember the joke? Yeah, because oh because I it know, made so me. I, like... I remember the whole. So I remember this. So because part of me writing this book, right? If I'm going to tell you, look, I really think that those around you, those you lead, those you work with, those you live with those you know like deserve to know a bit more about you and see you you know show up and be more authentic vulnerable all these kind of words right then i'm gonna have to i've shared in my book like a really uncomfortable stories that i never shared in public before because i i really felt like it would be really i don't know dishonest of me right to tell you to do one thing but not doing it myself so i share the story of being since <laughs> i was a kid and uh, I, I went to like an international school, right, in, in, in France. My mom started this anglophone section in, in southeast of Paris, in Fontainebleau, my hometown. And so they get a call, like the admin office gets like a call from producers of the Jonathan Ross show saying, hey, we've got a recording of the Jonathan Ross show at the Euro Disney. Um, I forgot what the name of the theater is over there. But anyway, it doesn't matter, like this big theater. Do you have any kids? We're looking for kids to attend. Like, would you like to have a bus that come and you can give you free tickets for adults and all this stuff and i was like yeah great do it so we all went on this bus right a bunch of like older kids and people i knew and parents my mom so we off we set off and we get into this <laughs> we get into this audience it's like it's really big really big audience there's a stage you know there's a crew there i'm like young i always wanted to be an actor when i was a kid so i'm just like really interested and curious to, have to see how they do this and jonathan ross comes on the, on the stage for those of you who don't know who jonathan ross is he's kind of you know, a, a very famous English pundit who's I had like talk shows and and radio shows and that kind of stuff, and uh, and he had Diana Ross who was one of his key guests that night. He was going to interview and he was doing like a talk show kind of thing, but live, right? And they would, you know, they would often like if he made a mistake, they would stop, they would re-record. It wasn't live, live like it was pre-recorded, but it was almost pretending like it was live. And in between, like set uh, like sets of recording, I guess they would have some entertainers or they would try and get the audience to kind of keep the energy up. And one of them at one point was like these two, two women with microphones kind of said like, Hey, do anybody like any kids like would like to share the favorite joke, you know? And I remember, I remember the two guys who were with me. It was, it was Gautier and Andrew, um, Andrew Bunzel and Gautier de Groot actually um, stand up. And I think maybe Ben McNeil. Anyway, there's like four of us were standing there. And one by one, they tell their jokes. And their jokes were very much like, um, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? Ha, 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 you know. Um, very, very PC. Even before PC was a thing, right? But like very, very PC. And then I get the mic. And I don't know how old I was, man. I must have been anything between eight and 10, I guess. Like, or maybe I wasn't 15 for sure. But maybe I was 14. God knows. I was young. And the microphone comes. And... I basically say this joke in front of, I don't know how many hundreds of people, right? Camera crews, all this stuff. And I go, so the parrot, um, a parrot, let me try to remember. Yes, it goes. So it's like a parrot walks into a bar 
goes up to the bartender and says, you know, can I get a Coca-Cola? And the bartender says, like, we don't we don't serve Coca-Cola here. He's like, can I have a Coca-Cola? He's like, no, I just I just, I just told you we do we don't we don't have Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is like, I like a Coca-Cola. He's like, listen, listen, mate, we don't have a Coca-Cola. If you ask for a Coca-Cola one more time, I, I swear there'll be consequences. I want a Coca-Cola. Right. If you ask me for Coca-Cola one more time, I will pin your wings to that wall. And that'll be the end of that. Coca-Cola. Right. That's it. Grabs the parrot, puts some nails in both his wings, and then leaves. Right. And that, the parrot turns around and sees Jesus and says, Did you ask for a Coca-Cola too? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I say this joke, right? Literally, you can hear the whole audience going like, oh. Oh, 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 and then the girl like snatches the, the mic out of my hands, right? And she's like, okay, thank you, everybody. And she leans in in my head. She's like, don't you ever say that joke again. And my mom was like a Christian, right? Like raised me as a Christian, must have been absolutely appalled. And like, if I offended anybody who's religious out there, just know that my intention was in the book to show that that joke worked really well in the in the play in the play um playground with my friends it didn't work in that context and the whole message about that story was you've got to understand your audience you've got to understand the context and the platform in which you're communicating a message to make sure you land the right story context is is everything it's about the audience and i was struggling to make this bit work because i was laughing so much again as you were telling the joke but i didn't want to to make it too loud because of the microphone so this was this was hard but anyway glow in the dark oh, glow in the dark God, now i'm gonna how... get so many messages from like religious groups telling me like how i'm going to hell and anyway <laughs> i know i know it's okay it's okay it's just just a joke it's just a joke yeah how... but there, 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 there was a purpose like when you read the book you'll see that sharing that story has had a purpose had a had a had a had an intention it wasn't just cruel cruel making yeah, fun because yeah. oh because i forgot to say that that's true that when i forgot this i talk about this in the book when i didn't get anybody laughing i thought oh is it because i made a joke about a parrot getting nails in his wig <laughs> and, and everybody's like really sensitive to like animal rights <laughs> like it just it just didn't really cross my mind that you know making a joke about jesus um to a room of random strangers of like this kid was just inappropriate but anyway but you're exactly. right. There was there was an important message behind you did you did explain it in in mm. the book. Now, your book Glow in the Dark: How Sharing Your Personal Story Can Transform Your Business and Change Your Life. Now, one of the things you talk about in the book, you also give some practical tips from a communication perspective in general. Mm. And one of the tips you give is that you when you speak in public, when you communicate an idea, you need to have one central idea, not two, not three, one mm. central idea. And I agree with you 100%. Mm. Now, what's the central idea of your book? Mm. If I had to summarize it, I would say that your story is your superpower. And actually, it would be like, it would be like if, you know, if you knew how powerful your story was, you wouldn't be sitting on it. Yeah, I think that would be like the central idea. Like that would be the message. And then, then you can distill it into saying, um, there's like a few different ways you could unpack it, depending on the audience. Because actually what's interesting about the book is I'm giving talks to different kind of audiences. So in the corporate world, in business schools, uh, with entrepreneurs and founders, and so depending on the audience, again, if you follow the formula that I talk about in my book, I'll slightly adapt it, right, for that audience. So if I'm speaking to um, like a bunch of founders or, or startup founders looking to raise 
money or whatever pitching, I'll say that, you know, your story is the only unique thing about you. And it's the only thing that's going to allow to create the emotional glue that your investors are looking for as to why they should care about what you care about, right? If I talk to, uh, in a company organizations, I'll talk about humanizing leadership and how if you want to get the most out of your team and your people, then you need to know how to create an environment in which people feel more comfortable to be themselves. And you can't be yourselves if you hide all of you all the time because of fear of repercussions or retaliation. So depending on the audience, I can I can tailor, I can repurpose the package of the book if you want. Because originally, my original intention of the book, really, and I used to say that this is the Trojan horse of my book, is healing. And my friend Emily Gindelsberger, the author of Please Help Me, Love Me, she was like, stop making that your Trojan horse, make that your central promise. And so I think hopefully throughout the book, you probably got that message, which is kind of like, Owning your stories is the most powerful thing you can do for yourself, for your business, and for your audience. Because then you can experience ultimate freedom, which is you are no longer fearful of what people know or don't know about you. And and so I made it more of a central premise, you know, I, th I think. I, 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 yeah. And let's, let's, you said that we can unpack in different ways. I would like to unpack this central idea in a couple of ways. One is, and it's something that you've mentioned already, and I wanted to ask you, and it's a simple idea, but like many things, simple things are powerful. It, mm. It's insightful. It made me think you said in your book that people, especially if we think about a business context, mm. business owners, business leaders, people can copy many things that you do. They can mm. copy your product. They can copy your service. They can copy your marketing. They can copy many things. Mm. The one thing they can't copy is your story. Mm. Would you like to to unpack this in a little yeah, bit more I mean, detail? One hundred percent. You know, people don't like hearing this when I say, "Look, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't really matter how you do it." You know, up to a certain point, of course. Like, if you'll tell me, like, "Well, KFC got secret sauce and all that," yeah, sure, okay, got it. But really, anyone can copy pretty much everything, and people can even um, steal your talent, right? Like, but. The one thing that they can't compete with is you, your story, unique you. And actually, I would go a step further. I think a lot of people are, you know, we're talking a lot about AI at the moment and chat GTP and all that kind of stuff. And I'm excited about that. I think a lot of people panicking, you know, that's fine. But the way that I see it is, you know, chat GTP, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it's like AI powered humans are going to create some really powerful content. But the one thing that AI can't compete with is authenticity through storytelling, through powerful personal storytelling. So there will never be another you. There will never be an amalgamation of all the experiences, the ups and downs that you've gone through, the personal insights, the whatever you want to call it, like nobody can compete with you, just period. So I think it's crazy that business owners, business leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, professionals like, aren't leveraging the most powerful asset they have, which is themselves, right? So this idea that, you're sitting on this incredible asset and you're not making the most of it, it just kills me. And especially when I, when I know why, like I've listed in the book, like the 10 blockers, the 10 story blockers, like the, the reasons why we don't, you know, share our stories or why we're afraid of it. Um, that's what I wanted to do with this book to try and really change that, to try and convince people that your story matters and your message has value. Mark, you mentioned a couple of things now. And so I've got 
two follow-up questions mm -hmm. on those two things. One is authenticity, but we'll get there later. You also said you also talked about the blockers. Now, if I remember well, one of the blockers you mentioned is that often the reason why we don't share our, our story is because we think it's dull, we think it's boring, mm. we think that nobody cares about it, we think that nobody sees the benefit, the value of it. Mm. It would be great if you could, because I see that also in my mm. field in general when it comes mm. to presenting, public speaking, often we know so much. It doesn't have to be our story, but we know mm. so much about a message. We are so close to it that that I see that their obstacle as well. Would you like to unpack it a little bit more? Yeah, and I think you kind of named it basically. It's it's a concept called proximity bias, which is, I, I talk about that in the book as well, but it's this concept that you're so close to it that you can't see it, right? It's uh, it's what we all go through. You know, Dan Priestley talks about you're standing on the mountain of value. It's just another way of saying it. But the idea is you don't see how great a value of your story is because you're so close to it and i actually i'll, I'll give you a, a concrete example around that but before i name it a lot of people think that oh i don't have a hollywood story like i didn't go through some big trauma big capital t trauma right like i wasn't abused my parents were pretty decent i had a pretty good childhood like i just i don't really have these kind of heartstring stories that i can pull on so what I've learned time and time and time again is that I've yet to, to meet someone who doesn't have an interesting part of their story. Or I have yet to meet someone who started a business, who's gone into trying to make a difference and who hasn't had some form of story that links to why they do what they do today. Just have, I haven't. I'm not saying it's impossible. I just I haven't yet. So, so I'll give you an example. Address up. What's one of your favorite films? Is it called uh, in English? Because I think I saw in Italian many years ago, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. Oh. Yeah, yeah, Shawshank Redemption. Cool. So do you remember the first time you saw it? Uh, kind of. Yeah, it was like maybe 15 years ago or yeah. something. Cool. Why did you like it? Why did that film come up? As soon as I asked you, like, what's one of your favorite films? Why do you think that film came up for you? I love, I don't know why, but I love stories of people who end up in a certain place sometimes it's a prison or mm. they end up in a certain place and wrongly mm. and then there's a redemption they 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 find a way to 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 just either doesn't have to be escaping but to to live in a good way, in a happy way, regardless of the situation. It has many implications also from a psychological perspective, I think. Got it. So how many times did you say you've seen that film? Uh, two or three times. Two or three times. Cool. Did you enjoy it the two or three times you've seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, imagine if I told you you had to sit and watch that film not two or three times, not five, not ten but a hundred times back to back. Now a thousand times back to back. I locked you in a room, you got food and drink, but you had to watch this film back to back. How do you think you'd feel about the film? I'm not sure. Probably a thousand times is a bit too much back to back. You know it's too much. I don't think you think. I think you know that if you had to watch it a thousand times, you'd, you'd pull the hair out of your beard. You know, you'd be like, screw this. Like, I can't take this anymore. Or you would just feel so bored and dull about it. It's the same thing with your life story. You've seen it so many times. You've been with it for so long. 
that you just don't see its value anymore. But if someone saw Shawshank Redemption for the first time today while listening to this conversation, they might be blown away about it. And what we can't realize or see is that there's someone out there who's never heard our story who needs to hear it to get a sense of hope about their future, right? And so the first thing is you have to intellectually understand that you may be the worst person to judge your own story. That the best people to judge your story are probably those who need to hear it. And by sharing it, you're going to get some undeniable like feedback that your story resonated. And it does... It doesn't like this is what I've I've worked with a bunch of CEOs and founders about, you know, unpacking their stories and sharing the stories so the world listens and stuff. But it's always amazing how you can take a seamless, like uneventful event and turn it into something really powerful. Right. A word that was said to you, a gesture that was made towards you, something you saw, something you felt, like all of these things are valuable lessons that you can share. Like I just got off the phone, uh, a call with a prospective client I was I was talking with. And just in that initial conversation, as he was kind of sharing a bit more about his story, I just kept on seeing like just signals do, 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 kind of popping around. Like if these were light bulbs, right? Just go like, that makes so much sense. Why you do what you do now and why you're so passionate about it? Because da, 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 you know? But for some people it's like, oh, I never thought about that. Like I never, I never thought that... <clears throat> You know, just to give you that, when I was going through this process, um, I remember going back to a story of me when I was at school as a young kid and where I was bullied by my school teachers because I'm dyslexic. So I struggled, I struggled, you know, to, to spell and to read out loud and suck at maths. And that doesn't sit very well in the French archaic education system. And so I was bullied like on a really regular basis by my French teachers and humiliated in front of my classmates. And so... On, on the upside, that doesn't sound like, you know, a potent kind of story that can relate in the corporate world when I go and talk into companies, Fortune 500 companies or conferences. But actually, that experience enabled me to, to relate to people when it comes down to feeling like you don't belong, feeling like you don't fit in or feeling like you're not being praised for your skills, but you're being put down for your, for your, for your blind spots, Right. And so what would it be like if we could create a culture in, in which everybody felt like they could be seen, heard, and understood and supported? So right, so I can link that story to the work that I do. And it just it's just in a really, like in a really quick way, you can connect the dots so people can go, oh, he cares, or she cares, or they care, right? Because that's ultimately, I think, what our audience are always looking for a reason to buy into our story and our narrative to see that we care enough that they should care too. And I I said that I would like to talk about authenticity, but mm. let me park it for a second because mm -hmm. I, I think, Mark, we should also tell our listeners, in a way you've done it already, but I think we can do even more, why storytelling is so powerful and i think mm. you share an example in in your book which i knew already but for our listeners i think it would be great if you could share it again which explains and shows so nicely why storytelling is so powerful you talk about a research a study done by professor yuri Asun, uh, a, a neuroscientist uh, yeah from princeton yeah. university 
And again, if you remember that anecdote. Yeah, yeah. yeah so the short, the, short, the short version is that they were, they were basically studying to see what, the, what is the impact of, of, of someone listening to a story on our brains and, and can, can it shape and impact our behavior, basically. So what they did is that they put um, different, different patients in, in MRI scans. MRI scans, it looks at the activities of your brain. And what they noticed is that at the start of the experiment, when they would have one person starting to tell the story, the person listening, the brain activities were very much out of sync. You would see different brain activities going on, right, in the different parts of their brain. But as the story progressed and as they shared their story, what they found was their brain waves actually started to sync up and they started getting very similar patterns in the brains. And what that led them to conclude, or at least suggest, was that when we listen to stories, a part of a brain, which is an amygdala, which is a nuclei almond shape in, 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 our, in, our, in our front of the brain, um, gets activated. And that uh, often determines our emotions, our behavior, our motivations. And so scientifically, they showed that we are hardwired to pay attention to stories more than anything else, more than stats and facts and figures. Like stories are how we are hardwired now. You know, Carmen Gallo talks about in his great book, you know, the secrets to storytellers and all that kind of stuff. That back in the olden days, in the prehistoric times, when you know fire started coming around, we started cooking food, our larynx lengthened, we started sharing stories. And when you think about it, it makes sense because we'd have to share stories to understand like what are the fruits or fungi to avoid, where do we find shelter, where how do we attack our um our prey, like our food, like how do we avoid being eaten by saber-toothed tigers? Like all this kind of stuff, we would have to pay attention because if you didn't, you most likely would eat the wrong thing or end up <laughs> end up being eaten by a nasty thing, you know? So it, it's kind of an intrinsic part of our of our human DNA. And 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 so if you understand from a like meta level of how story influences us, then you're going to really enjoy the next part of the book where I kind of talk about why specifically for when it comes down to getting people to pay attention to what you have to sell, share, or say, um, stories really matter. Yeah, no, you're right. It's something that intuitively we know, but it's good to know that it's also supported and backed by by science. Mm. Now, authenticity, in the book you talk about this, you talk about the authenticity gap. Mm the 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 gap between who you who we think we should be mm -hmm. and who we who we actually are mm -hmm. and I, i've heard you say many times also you talk about in the book i, I like the, your i don't know if it's your mantra but i've heard you uh, say different times being yourself is good for business mm. that, that's what you think yeah which is connected to authenticity tell us more mark what do you think yeah so yeah. So, I mean, I, I learned that again through stand-up comedians. Like I realized that some of the most compelling stand-up comedians, like Ricky Gervais, right? You talk about him. <laughs> so Ricky Gervais, when he gets up there and he makes jokes about like, you know, being a millionaire, you know, he's like, you know, when he says, I think he says something like, I'm, I'm a minority and I'm a white male millionaire, you know, something like that. You know, he acknowledges his, his status and makes fun of himself. And like, you know, he says why he hasn't got kids and why he lives in hams. Like he makes all these jokes, right? But really what I'm what I'm trying to boil down with that is that often stand-up comedians who really appeal to have a really great capacity to make fun of themselves, of own their their flaws and 
put a big line on it to the point where we laugh about it. And it's very therapeutic, by the way, um, to go through that. And when you take the other side of the of, of the spectrum, I would say politicians would probably be on the other side, where we find it very difficult to relate and connect to politicians these days, most of them, because it all feels very manufactured, fake, and controlled. And so you never really know who you're getting or, or what, you know what I mean? Like, so when you've got far and few in between the extremes that come out and like, you know, trying to create some form of political revolution, what you want to call it, they kind of stand out because for once they would just go like, yeah, well, they might be assholes, but at least we know who they are, you know? But it's, it's, it's an important message to take back. And so the authenticity gap was something I developed over the years, working with leaders and MBA students and entrepreneurs and founders. And I became fascinated by this idea of like, here's who I think I need to be and here's who I think I need to portray and here's who I actually am. And that gap, the wider that gap is, the harder it is for you to connect with people on a deeper level and the harder it is for people to understand you really and want to follow you through, you know, through uncertainty. Whereas I found that leaders who've managed to find a way to narrow that gap almost to the point of being non-existent, everyone kind of benefits and it's scary and it's vulnerable and it might land you into trouble sometimes. But the point is, I'm, I'm a big believer in... in um, in living in a world where we don't have to be one person at work and one person at home if we chose if we choose so to be right if you want to have some privacy that's totally cool but this idea that i used to get these ceos who see me speak at their conferences all all staff kind of all team all hands conferences I, i'd sometimes get the ceos that come up to me and she or he would say this is going to sound really weird but stick with me they'd be like how how do i be more like you i'm like what do you mean like how do you just come on stage and just kind of like talk like if we're having a, a beer or or a tea like you know you're just as comfortable that you talk to me now as you're on stage so i said so so what you're asking me is like how do i get to be the same person no matter where i am yeah and i was like cool that for me is again a, a part of ultimate freedom is when you can navigate any environment any stage and just be you and of course, there are parts of you that we hold back or we control or depending on which context we're in. Like if I go to my daughter's school to read a bedtime story, I'm not going to drop F-bombs. You know, like I'm not going to be like I, I'm someone who swears quite a lot just because it's just my style. Like just on the back of this, I had a magazine reach out to me saying they wanted to feature my book. I was like, OK, they asked me to send them a physical copy. But we're like, no problem. I send them the copy. Weeks they don't get back to me and I'm just chasing like, hey, do you still want to do a feature on me and stuff? And they get back to me like, oh yeah, by the way, like we saw that you've got the word sex and like F-bomb in your book. So we really think it's inappropriate. So we're not going to be able to feature you. And I just, we're gonna, I just told them like, oh, no worries. Just next time, tell me. Like before we waste each other's time, just let me know that you have a strict policy about no swear word. But, and I told them, I said, you know, where, where there's pain, there's, there's, there's swearing. Like it's just, it's just a way of, of processing. So it's me, I swear, that's my style, but I wouldn't be me like that in a school environment. Does that make sense? So it's it's learning how to hone in for the benefit of the audience. You know, like my mom has an extreme approach to this and she's always been like that, is that she has no regard for anybody else's feelings of how she shows up and how she talks. She's very much like, this is who I am. This is what I want. And if it offends you, that's your problem, Right. But if you want to become an effective communicator, if you want to learn how to inspire people, if you want to learn how to connect to people through a message, you've got to understand that 
the end goal is to meet people where they are and bring them on board to where you want to go, right? And there are different ways of doing that. And of course, you could be someone who believes like, I want to alienate people. I want to be Marmite. And that's great. But the point is, how cool would it be if you could consolidate the two parts of you that you see in the mirror, the professional you and the personal you? And then you would have boundaries because everybody needs boundaries. Like, you know, strong marriage, like what you're willing to share, what you're not willing to share. But this idea for me that you somehow have to park yourself before you go to work, this idea that you have to wear a mask when you step on stage, it's heartbreaking because it's so exhausting. Like, I just think it's exhausting. You know, like you could be spending all that time and energy being of service instead of hiding. Um, that's also kind of why I wrote this book, to try and speak to that. As you were explaining this concept, the authenticity gap, you said, of course, then depending on the audience, depending on the context, if you want to be a, an effective communicator, you may need to tweak your, your approach a little yeah. bit. And it made me think about something that you that you brought in the book that you also mentioned at the beginning of this conversation. We said at the beginning, in the end, it's it's about the audience. Communication is about the audience. Mm. You say that when you share a story, even when you share your own story, mm. we need to remember that we are not the hero of the story. Mm. The audience is the hero. So it's mm. not about us. It's about them. Maybe you shared everything, but I just wanted to give an opportunity. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention when it comes to, it's not about us, it's about the audience. Yeah, so, so, so you know, what's really interesting is that you picked up on a few things that a lot of people have messaged me about after reading my book that really resonate with them. And one of them is, you know, the, the, it's so funny because when you said the authenticity gap, I smiled because I literally got an email this morning from a reader saying, you know, oh my God, I've read, you, you probably don't know this, but this really resonated with me, the authenticity gap and kind of, so that's why I smiled. Yeah, what you're picking up is another thing I hear a lot. It's this 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 mantra, this concept I say in the book, which is like your story is about you, but it's not for you. And that gives people permission to understand that their story is a vehicle for a bigger message than just about the peculiar. So another story blocker that I share in the book is a lot of people don't want to share the story because they're afraid of hurting people that are involved in the story. And so I share an example um, in the book, which I thought was a really powerful example of someone who went on a podcast on a pretty major, you know, podcast, number one European business podcast, um, and shared a story about how he, he basically gets home. I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to spoil it too much, but he gets home, sees his wife and she gives him like this incredibly dis distraught kind of news, right. That just implodes his whole marriage effectively. Now, as I, I used to use this example in workshops, and what happens is as you read the story, your attention goes to the pain that he must have felt, how difficult it must have been, and how he managed to overcome and go forth. Your, your focus isn't on his wife who did or didn't do something which you deem to be good or bad, right? It's kind of almost just like an, a part of the story. She's like, she's like an element of conducive for the bigger story. And so I say this because we can sometimes hold back because we're afraid of if we're going to share a story, it's going to involve other people. Now it's, it's interesting because as we're recording this, I'm listening to Prince Harry's book spare. Cause I've been asked a lot about that book in different interviews, especially American based podcasts. Um, because it's kind of like one extreme of sharing my story. This is my story, my truth. And what's interesting is as I'm listening to it, there are parts where I catch myself going, was that detail necessary? You know, 
like there's there's and I'm and I'm actually I'm actually really enjoying his Ghost Rider. By the way, is an amazing rider. Like I don't care how you feel about Spare, where you stand on the on the debate. I forgot the name of his Ghost Rider. He's the one who did. Um, uh, um, oh, Sir Knight was the name. The Nike founder. Oh, Andrea, um, I, Phil Knight. Yeah, so he wrote Phil Knight's book, and he wrote, which I, I love. By the way, sorry because because you mentioned that one of the most powerful books I've ever read. Yeah, so he wrote it. So it's the same ghostwriter who wrote that, and he's the same guy who wrote Andre Agassi's memoir. Like the guy's a genius. I mean, there's a reason why he's getting paid millions to write books for other people. But anyway, there's this like literally there's this part where he talks about how his his dad because of his back problems has to do handstands in his bedroom, and he says like he he wears nothing but his boxer shorts. Like I was just thinking. How does that serve the story that he's sharing? Do you know what I mean? Like that we're now imagining King Charles in his boxer shorts doing handstands. Doing handstands is one thing. Like the, detail, like the reason I'm saying this is that you've got to always keep the attention of what the important thing of your story is. I, 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 when, I, when I work with founders and CEOs about <clears throat> unpacking their stories, you've got to be careful not to open too many doors. Imagine you've got your audience walking through a corridor and there's only so many doors that you can get them to open before they you lose them. So stick to the point. Just stay on track and remember that your story's about you, but it's not for you. And when people hear that, the the the, the permission it gives you is to go, oh, so I don't have to be the center of attention. That's not the point of the story. Me sharing my story is not about like, look at me, love me, see me, approve me. It's rather, I'm going to share this so you can understand this thing. Or I'm going to share this so that you don't feel alone. I'm going to share this so that you can get a grasp as to why I really believe in this thing, Right. And so you then become an ambassador for your story, but really you become an ambassador for the message you're trying to land with your audience. What, what, what that tells us is one of the things that, that that tells us is the storytelling is not about, it's not just about telling a story. We want to tell a story to make a point. That is exactly like, that is one of my biggest Hey, when I come when it comes down to what I see online of people, there's a difference. So I don't know if you remember this, but there's a part of the book I kind of talk about the different types of stories we have, right? And um, and most people who tell stories, whether that's at a party, at a at a, at a offsite, uh, at an all team meeting, at a, but it doesn't matter. Some people are, think they're good natural storytellers, and some people are right. Like the Irish are naturally really good, by the way. But that's another conversation. Um, but it's always like, what's the point of your story? Right. I remember telling my mom, my poor mom is getting a lot today in this podcast. I love, you know, I do love my mom. But I remember sending a quote, someone I forgot, someone wise, right, said, I forgot, is it Aristotle? I forgot who it was. But someone, there's this legend of someone who like, someone runs up to them and says, hey, I've got the story to tell you. And they stopped them and said, before you tell me the story, can you answer these three questions? Is it kind? Were you there? And is it going to improve my day? Or something like that. And if the answer is no, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so I told this woman, she's like, nonsense. What a bunch of rubbish, you know, like she'll just tell stories and stories and stories and doesn't mean she just needs to have a pulse. That's that's all she needs. Um, and so the the book, the way that I wrote it and at the end, I basically said, look, there are three parts to a really compelling story, what I call impact driven stories. You know, um, you need to have three parts. You need to kind of give me the context so that I understand very briefly where you are, what's going on. So my brain isn't going like, wait, what's that? Was that in Sicily? Where was that? What year was that? No, like I just get it really quickly, but not too much. So I'm, I'm over, overwhelmed. Then give me the content, like what is it that you're saying? What happened? And then give me the conclusion, like what's the point? Like you think people understand the point, but you've got to spell it out, right? You've got to say like, you know, I was doing this, like like I did today with the joke. 
if you go back and listen to this, it was long, actually, it was a long way of version, but you actually, you can break it down. I said, you know, I'm 16, and I'm 12, and I'm in France. We go to this show, and then I tell the story, right? And I could have stopped. We could have stopped that story by me just saying this joke, and you and I both laugh. And But actually, I said, but actually, the point of me saying the story is that I realized that that joke worked in the playground, but it didn't in this audience. And what that means is you've got to be careful of who you're speaking to and where you, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I drew out the conclusion of that story. So that's what you need to become better at. When you when you share someone a story, there needs to be a point, right? Otherwise, you just you just it's not that you're wasting time because entertainment has value, right? But if you look at great stand-up comedians, because I know we've talked a lot about them, they usually have a really kind of message at some point that they land, whether that's at the end of the show or in between two jokes. But there's usually a moment of truth. Like my, one of my favorite stand-up comedy specials it's really really hard in the end to look at it but it's amazing it's and i don't remember it now i feel really bad it's on netflix and it's um she's australian she's a she's a stand-up comedian i'll send you the link so you can put it in the show note right i'll find it i'll send you in the link but it's brilliant it's like i don't want to spoil it but watch it i think it's called nanette i think it's that something just comes up i think it's called nanette on Netflix, and it's just, it's like the last stand-up comedy special that this comedian's decided to do. And she and then the, basically, there's this huge message that happens in the halfway through the show, and she just lands this kind of like truth play. You say just out of curiosity. I think you said it's it's hard to watch. Is it, is it because of the message behind or? Yeah, yeah, because it's 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 kind of like it's very difficult for me to talk about it without ruining it but okay she, the first half is like really funny and then she basically says this is why i'm stopping comedy and then goes through the same jokes that she did and actually shares the difference between the truth and 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 crafting a story for for comedy's sake yeah yeah it's really it's fascinating i think it's, yeah i'm pretty i'm 90% sure it's called the net on uh, okay. on netflix we'll include it in the in the show notes and Mark, in your book, there are also some, even beyond like sourcing, I think you talk about sourcing, shaping, sharing your story, even beyond mm. that, you also give some practical tips, communication tips in general, speaking tips. One I particularly liked is when it comes to controlling or trying to overcome nerves, anxiety mm. around speaking in public, you you talk about speaking to an audience of one. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell us it's more. It's great. I mean, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for reading the book. I can tell you the difference between doing a show if someone's done who read the book and hasn't is like night and day. It's real. It's a real joy to 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 talk to someone who's read the book and you've distilled some really great points out of the book. That the reason why I'm saying that is because everything you're pulling out are emails I'm getting. So I laughed again of audience of one because that was another message I got, I think on LinkedIn a couple of days ago saying like this audience of one has changed the way I write content and all this kind of stuff. Um, I interrupted you. Was there a question? Do you want me to talk to it? No, the, to the que it. no the question is like, can for those who don't know yeah, what these... Okay. Got it. So one of the, again, you got to keep in mind that for the past, I don't know, decade almost, I've worked with a combination of entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, and, and professionals, right? And when it comes down to putting themselves out there, you know, unpacking their leadership, all this kind of stuff. And one of the, um, one of the common traits I kept on getting was like this overwhelm, like, I just don't know how, where to start. Like if I'm writing a talk, if I'm writing a, 
of content on social media, if I'm writing a book, if I'm sharing my story on a podcast, like I just, it feels very overwhelming. Like, and so I just came up with this kind of concept of audience of one. The concept of speaking to one person is a new, like Tim Ferriss did that when he wrote his book, The 4-Hour Workweek. A lot of authors talk about this idea of having this avatar. So that usually what people will say is like, have, have a clear avatar in your head, which is I basically, it's like, think about your ideal client or think about a previous client you've worked with who was like a dream client. If you could clone that client, who would that be? Give them a name. For example, me, um, I've got um, on my desk to show you that I'm not lying. I've got Donna, right, on my desk. She's my audience of one. Like when I wrote my book, Donna was my audience of one. I got to work with Donna for, for a few months and helping her unpack the story. And she's unbelievable. She's such an amazing leader right and it was all about like owning her story and how her stories transformed her life and business and stuff so when i write stuff i think of donna when i jump on this podcast and i think about what are the messages that i wish the former donna before she met me would hear that's what i think about she's my audience of one and so having an audience of one means that when you write an email instead of going dear and then put insert your email you know campaign automation system acronym you put i put I'll, in my head i'll put dear donna and then i'll write the email as i'm writing to her before donna it was it was my partner julie because she was my best friend and we used to i used to we used to bounce stuff and she started a business and she used to really struggle with all the stuff i'm really good at and i used to struggle with what she was really good at so i used to write all my emails for years in my head as like dear julie and i would write it as i was writing to her and it's so it's just night and day how easy it is because you then can speak to the dreams the fears the aspirations the hopes of that individual because you know them and in the in the in the deeply personal lives the universal that as as again and again you know it's mad that i've written this book and i'm getting message from people saying i feel like you were in my head like you're speaking to all the things that i've been wrestling with and the reason being is that i wrote it for one person who represents many more you know, we we all have we all have battles. We all wrestle with doubt. We all have moments of imposter and all this kind of stuff. So, if whatever you're about, right? If you're about to write some content, you're about to go on a podcast, you're about to speak on stage, you're about to just think of your audience of one. What is that one person that if you could speak to, you would wish to talk to, and make it make that make that the the priority? Because then you, then you have a single focus instead of like a see crowd right it can get overwhelming when you step on stage and you've got hundreds of people if you've got a big mailing list of thousands of people it can be overwhelming to send an email going like oh my god all these people gonna read it but just think of your audience of one and usually the rest takes care of itself there's another concept that i loved uh, in your book we and we are very much aligned there you say one of the say public speaking tips or communication tips you give is focus on connection rather than perfection and mm -hmm. I agree with you 100%. Mm -hmm. I think there is no such thing as a perfect talk or a perfect mm -hmm. presentation. I also tell my clients, Mark, focus on progress rather than perfection, which is similar. Mm -hmm. uh, also, my my colleague, Phil Wakenell, he likes to say, make it personal, not perfect. Mm -hmm. So tell us more about your idea behind focus on connection rather yeah. than perfection well i think it's it's like a lot of, a lot of us are looking to get the permission to be imperfect in public i think if you had to boil it down if you had to summarize all the sayings that you i and phil say it's like this idea that we just want to have the permission to be imperfect in public and to fail 
in a public way. And that's really scary. And I get into the book why it's from a genetic perspective of an evolutionary biological perspective, we are hardwired to fit in, to not cause too much trouble, because if we do, we might get cast away from a, from the tribe, from the group, and we might end up facing really dangerous predators and harsh conditions and die a really painful and slow, lonely death, and definitely won't be able to continue our lineage. So it's ingrained in us to try and, and, and play small and fit in, but you know nobody wins when, when you do that. Um, so I think it's like, if I could give a tip to people listening to this, it's practice, practice and practice doing things that you're uncomfortable and that you're not yet good at in a slightly more public way. Um, it's what a lot of it, you know, a lot of, you know, introverts, perfectionists sometimes struggle with is this idea that I need to get it right. I need to be perfect before I put it out there. But I think I talk about this in the book towards the end, you know, three S's sounds better, right? Than four S's. But really, if I could add a fourth S, it would be that your story sharpens as you share it, right? Like, you know, I, I run a, a program called Own Your Story, which is to help founders and CEOs of six or seven figure service businesses to learn how to leverage their story and turn it into a really powerful asset and client magnet that people pay attention to. And the final part of that program, I kind of go is like, look, whatever you've got now is perfect. You need to start sharing it because it's going to get better. You're going to sharpen it as you share. Elements of your story are going to resonate. Some aren't. You're going to Disregard that bit. You're going to double down on that bit. You're going to see that this bit works really well for this kind of audience. That bit doesn't. So you just become much better at, at pick and choosing, almost like a vending machine. Like I talk about this in the book about your story bank, right? Like imagine your story bank, which are all the different anecdotes or stories that have shaped you in some way, shape or form, right? From your professional to your personal. And you could have like a vending machine. And you knew, depending on which platform you went on or what context you found in, that you could just select the perfect story to share that perfect moment. And the way you do that is like, even now, like if I'm talking to you, I'm like in my brain, I'm like a 24, that story land, you know, and sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Oh, I thought I needed a Snickers bar. But actually what I needed was water. Like I feel bloated, you know, whatever. So give yourself the permission to be imperfect in public and give yourself the permission to not have to know it all. There's a beautiful video that I re-recommend you put in your show notes by Ari Glass, the, the founder and host of This American Life podcast. It's called The Creative Gap, I think it's called, or The Creativity Gap. He explains in such an eloquent and beautiful way what gets in the way of most people showing up in whatever they want to do in their life, in a creative form, whether that's creating art, becoming a singer, becoming a public speaker, writing a book, starting a business, doesn't matter. And the gist of it is, in our minds, we know where we want to be, right? In our minds, we've got examples of where the standard at which we want to operate on, but we're just not there yet, right? There's this big gap between where we know we want to be, where we would like to be, and where the reality is. And that gap is what keeps most people stuck. Because you've got to suck, and 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 then you suck a little less, and then you suck a little less, and then you're kind of not sucking so much. You're not sucking so much. You're kind of like, Coasting, you're average, you're, you're right, you're getting there. Oh, you're getting better now, you're getting better. Ooh, you're getting good, you're getting real good. Wow, now it takes years. Takes years, right, to master craft, whatever it is. I've, I've been professionally speaking now for seven or eight years. I am way better now than I was then. 
<laughs> way better, right? And so just if you're listening to this, start small. And what's really interesting is I'm doing like this kind of health and fitness challenge thing for 12 weeks. And what that's taught me is stick to the program. Just focus on what you can do. You know, for me, it's like do my 10,000 steps, drink my three liters of water, get my seven to eight hours of sleep. You know what I mean? Like just, just eat this, this much of protein a day. Like if I can just get those numbers in every day, stuff will happen. And that, but my brain's like, it's not shifting fast enough. I'm not looking the way I want to. It's not working. Stick to the program. It's the same thing with, with the work that you and I do. It's kind of like, we're trying to get people to put themselves out there, present in a more effective and powerful way. And we've got strategies, we've got roadmaps. And a lot of people just kind of self-sabotage, right? Like there's the founder of the 1% guy. I had a chat with him once. You know, he's like a fitness kind of high peak performance coach. And he said, the problem is that when people get off, the, you know, when people like have a, like a binge or eat like a burger and stuff when they're supposed to be dieting, um, instead of just stopping there, they'll just have like a pizza and then like a gallon of Coke and they'll go for the cheesecake and all this stuff. And he said, it's a bit like if you punctured a tire and then you walk around the car and you go, oh shit. And then you start stabbing all the other wheels. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? So you, you just got to get better at sucking and have the humility to, to, to suck it up and just to go, it's not going to be sexy. This is going to feel sucky. You know, I think I forgot where I wrote this, where I said this, but, you know, truffles, right? Some of the most expensive mushrooms lives under dirt. If not, I think it's under poop, but I think it might just be under dirt, right? So you get to the, the, to the gold through getting through dirt. And that's where most people, most people fall short, that they're not willing to suck. I love Dare it. to suck. I love it. And, and you're right. It has so many implications in in many areas of our professional and personal life. Mark, as we we've got just five minutes as we approach the the conclusion of our conversation mm. beyond. We've talked about glow in the dark beyond your own book, beyond your own resources. If you think about the ideas that that, that you shared today, if you think about our conversation are there any other books that that you would recommend for for our listeners? Yeah, funny you mentioned that. I've just written a review of five books for this website called shepherd.com, I think it is. I'll show you the link if you want. Um Yes, please. It's basically they asked me to like they wanted to feature my book and they've got this cool way they're like, "Hey, we we like to feature authors, but what we like is for authors to recommend like five books that would be a really great complimentary read to their book." I was like, oh, this is really cool. So there's five. I'm going to try and remember from the top of my, top of my head. Um, so number one, there's Do Story by Bo Betts. And I can't remember her surname now from the top of my head. She's somewhere there. Anyway, so Do Story, uh, Bo Bet, That's a great little book about storytelling. Uh, wait, it's here. Give me a sec. It's Bo Bet Buster. There you go. Bo Bet Buster. Then we've got The Storyteller's Secret by Carmine Gallo. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, Donald Miller's book, The Building a Story Brand. Uh, we've got um, Jeevan McCormick's biography, which is I got there. It's 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 really powerful. 
And then finally, we have Story Worthy by Matthew Dix. Um, he is a multiple moth world champion storyteller. Um, and all those kind of books give, which is interesting because actually it's one of the reasons why I wrote Glow in the Dark. Like I read a whole bunch of books and storytelling and stuff. And I thought what, what was missing was that you would have like these great books that had really great tactics or frameworks. Sometimes they had 12 steps, nine steps, eight steps. And they weren't necessarily that applicable on the, on the fly when you're talking on a podcast or speaking on stage. But the other thing I felt like all the books I was reading were missing the fundamental elephant in the room, which is sharing your story isn't practical. It's hugely emotional. You know, like you can give all the tips and tricks in the world, but if you don't address the fact that it's really scary to do that, you're always going to fall short. So my book, I really want to bridge the, the deeply personal with the really practical and business side of it and bridge those two worlds. And I think I did a pretty good job at it. And that's why I told you, I think it was before we we pressed live. I think that's that's one of the reasons why I found your book unique. Mm. And okay, so Mark, if anybody would like to learn more about what you do, if 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 people would like to connect with you, where do they find you? What are you up to? Is yeah, there anything? So uh if you're on social media, I'm on at Mark Roost, uh, heavily on LinkedIn. Um but if you want to get a copy of the book, get all the bonuses, get the assessments and all that kind of cool stuff, it's www.glowinthedarkbook.com. You can contact me there. If you know someone's got a, a really great podcast, that'd be a great fit for. I'd love to hear from you. Um, but more importantly, I hope that you get a copy of my book. It's kind of the book that I always think about this. It's kind of like, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll spend what, 15 pounds on the book. And my wish is that in a year's time, you get in touch with me and say, I would have paid 10 grand for that book because that's how much has transformed my life and my business. Easy. That's kind of what I wanted the value to be of the book. Um, so I hope, I hope I've managed to accomplish the mission. And if, if anything inspired you from this conversation, please let me know on LinkedIn. I always love hearing from people who listen to podcasts and say, hey, I heard you on, you know, X pod, like Andrea's podcast. And I really enjoyed this part because then it helps me know what's landing. So I can then double down on that on the next show. So really appreciate you for reaching out. Yeah. And we are, we're going to include the all your links in the in the show notes. Mark, before we close, is there, if you think about, again, everything we talked about, what's the most important thing? Like, let's say that people watch this, listen to this episode, and then you never know, maybe they forget everything. But let's say that they, they remember just one thing. And if they remember that thing, you would be happy. What, what, what's that thing? I think it would be that... Um... Something along the lines of, like, no matter how lost you feel, no matter how shameful you are, no matter how many parts of you that you think are unworthy to be loved or parts of you that nobody should ever know, A, you're not alone, right? A, you're not alone. And B, remember that shame cannot survive when it's spoken to. And my wish and my hope is that you would realize that no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're wrestling with, there's a way out and things won't always be this way. So reach out, get some help, speak to a therapist. There's loads of great services now, which you can get support, whether that's for free or at a paid service. But the reason why I'm leaving people with this is because I think it's such a tragedy to hear how many people see a temporary problem as a permanent solution 
and and whether that's taking their own lives or suffering in silence when you really shouldn't um and i know it's a little bit deeper than maybe what we talked about the rest of the conversation but i really really want to say that because one day these wounds that feel so raw and scary and hard and incredibly painful to be with will heal in some way shape or form and when they do when you share them from that place of of from like i have scars and here's what i've learned here's what i wish i knew this is what i want for you more than anything then you'll have some of the most powerful potent healing stories in the world that you can connect with your audience and you know if you want to build your platform if you want to build your business but but just more than that just have the impact that i think deep down you may have never thought were possible but maybe craved a little and that's my wish for you mark thank you so much i have to tell you uh, this is the second time you appeared on our show and i very much enjoyed our first conversation that's why you are back <laughs> and i enjoyed this conversation even more this has mm. been one of the most enjoyable but also powerful impactful conversations i've had uh, on the podcast so appreciate you thank you very Same much way. yeah and uh, thank and you when my third time. book comes out you know in a couple of years i hope you'll have me back that'll be it'll be an honor we could do like a, we can do like a ritual every book every podcast I, i'd love to and before we close tell us maybe just uh in, in a few if, if you've got a minute tell us tell us about the the new book that you have in mind yeah i mean it's all it's all a bit in lockdown at the moment we're kind of working behind the scenes but the, the short version is um you know a lot of the things i've seen over the years of people struggling with you know what's my purpose how to find my purpose how do i play a bigger game um because once you once you've got your story locked down it's kind of like how do i go into the world and galvanize my story and turn it into a powerful movement or message and for that you need to have a compelling purpose that drives you and excites people around you and so i wanted to write a really short powerful book to help people kind of get a get a quick win in terms of demystifying the process of what having a purpose actually really is and what it isn't so working on that at the moment and uh hopefully it'll be out 2024 at some point and if you see my face come back on this podcast in a couple of years you'll know it's out <laughs> so from my side the invitation is there when the book is, i will ask you because i i will Appreciate know it. about the book i'm sure mark <laughs> that before 2024 we'll see each other again in london somewhere but in the meantime all the very best thank you very much again and uh, let's keep in touch good to see you brother if you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.